1: In this episode, we are grateful to be joined by David McDermott Hughes, who will be speaking on his book, Energy Without Conscience, Oil, Climate Change, and Complicity, published in 2017 by Duke University Press. David is a professor of anthropology at Rutgers University. In research and teaching, he explores ways in which people exploit each other while exploiting nature, environments, and the entire biosphere. He has written ethnography, history, and public criticism, on topics as diverse as settler colonialism, racism, slavery, land reform, climate change, oil, and renewable energy in Southern Africa, the Caribbean, and the European South. He's the author of many other books with his most recent titled Who Owns the Wind? Climate Crisis and the Hope of Renewable Energy. He's also a scholar activist, having served as president, chief negotiator, and climate justice chair of the Rutgers Faculty Labor Union. A very, very warm welcome to the podcast, David. It's great to have you on.
0: Thank you, Aleem. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for that introduction too.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Well, first off, could you please tell me a little bit more about yourself? I guess going a bit beyond what I just said in the intro, your personal story, how you came to be who you are today, and what experiences prompted you to write the book we're talking about?
0: Ah, well, I guess, I mean, of course, your introduction was very uh, complete. Um, I suppose that the earlier part of my career um, could use some more explanation. Um, In college, I was very involved in college in the early uh, and mid 1980s. I was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement um, regarding South Africa and uh, that that grew into an interest in academic and political interest in southern Africa as a whole and so I worked in Zimbabwe in development projects after college and in Zimbabwe and Mozambique during graduate school and I became very interested in the way in which white settler populations and their descendants were still holding land very much in disproportion to their numbers and through various forms of conservation, we're expanding their holdings and their rights to land. Uh, so I saw conservation as kind of a neo-colonial uh, project in southern Africa. So I was very interested in, in some of the themes you mentioned, settler colonialism, race as, as pursued through environmental concern. Um, But the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe by the early 2000s made it really impossible and and rather fruitless uh, to carry out applied research in Zimbabwe. And it was at that point in the early 2000s I was becoming very interested in climate change, um, which Zimbabwe is is, is pretty marginal to in the sense that I was interested in the drivers of climate change, the cause side of it. So, I thought, let me do some ethnography in a petro state, in a state whose economy rests on oil, gas, maybe coal. Um, and I looked across the world for a petro state where one could do this research. You know, it's difficult to get access um, to the oil ministry in, in say, Nigeria or Angola. Uh, but I found, first through the web and then through visits, that the Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries, as it was called then, in Trinidad and Tobago, was quite open. Um, I found the concession map available. I found people in Petrotrin, the National Gas Company, uh, willing, even eager to talk. Um, So Trinidad was where I found it was I was able to do the research on the causes and the the responsibility or lack of responsibility for the climate crisis among people very responsible for it. Um, The irony, of course, in Trinidad is that it's a small island state. Uh, and, therefore, exceptionally vulnerable to climate change. So you have a country that is exceptionally responsible uh, on the perpetrator side and exceptionally vulnerable on the victim side, and I wanted to see how people reconciled that contradiction. You know, and when I say exceptionally responsible, I recognize that Trinidad's aggregate emissions are, uh, I believe they're 0.1% in terms of CO2. Um, But per capita, uh, Trinidad's emissions are quite high. Uh, It's the third or fourth highest per capita in the world. Um, And of course, those national figures don't count exports. Um, So I was very interested in in how people knowledgeable about climate change and oil and gas would see their moral position in the world. And that's what the book is essentially about.
1: Right. There's uh, definitely a sort of paradox there, us being an island nation. Allied with other low-lying countries at pushing for you know climate action, uh, while simultaneously being the fourth highest per capita emitter of you know, gas emissions, you know. And I'm glad you pointed that out. So, well, the book is published. Well, was published in 2017. It's uh, definitely not a new book, <laughs> uh, even though we're featuring it on the New Books Network. But when I first heard about it, I you know became really interested because I I saw, well, for one, it was researched on and written about Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm from. In fact, I'm recording this conversation in Trinidad right now. Uh, But apart from being interested in it, uh, just on a surface level reason, I was also intrigued when I read uh, the synopsis uh, for the book. As the title saw of gives it away. You argue that the country engages in energy without conscience and might be complicit in climate change. You know, it just struck me as so bold I I had to interview this guy. I I need to find out more. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting title and framing. Um, Can you explain what you mean when you say energy without conscience?
0: Yeah. Okay. That's a great question, Aleem. And I'll have to give you a bit of a complicated answer. Um, what, what the, the, one of the big questions that, that interests me and many scholars is essentially why do good people do bad things uh, and I consider the extraction and burning of oil and gas on a massive scale to be one of the worst things one can do right now but the people I met um, were uh, very kind to me they were concerned about their families and their countries and you would have said uh, these are moral people Right. And so one answer to the reason why good people do bad things, why moral people do immoral things, is that they don't see the immoral thing as being immoral or moral or being in any way a matter of ethics and conscience. Um, and so I, I was interested historically in how oil failed to get this kind of ethical meaning attached to it. While there's a kind of ethical deficit around it. And it's hard to see this, you know, if you're in a petrostate state and if you're in the industry and so on. Um, but I compare oil to, say, uh, smoking, which went from being uh, considered to be very healthy to being considered to being now in, in the U.S. and Europe, uh, parts of Europe anyway, um, <clears throat> very, very denigrated, very stigmatized and um, Diamonds, too, um, have, have always had a kind of ethical, sort of even spiritual charge, emotional romantic charge, uh, whether it's positively in terms of uh, an engagement ring or negatively in terms of the Blood Diamonds campaign. But there's a kind of banality and flatness around oil. And I actually trace it back to slavery in the Caribbean um because it was it's in in the in this period of transatlantic slavery where the concept or the 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 format of fuel develops in the 18th century um now the idea of a fuel is that it's a commodity it's sold by weight or, or by a standard measure it's consumable storable shippable destroyable um, and you never really think much about its personal qualities. Um, I look very carefully at the records in, in the Spanish colonial archives in Sevilla in southern Spain. Look very carefully at the records during the very end of the Spanish period when Governor Chacon was, uh, was in Port of Spain. And he developed a, a method of measuring enslaved Africans and applying their labor uh, on a per hectare basis. The unit of measure was Fenega in that time. Anyway, a per land area basis um, for different crops, for sugarcane, for cotton, uh, for coffee. And, and these were slaves who enslaved people worked to death and then replaced through sh- more shipments from Africa or for within the, from within the Caribbean. Um and of course, eventually, uh, people decided that that was both immoral and uneconomic. Um, and enslaved Africans, as well as politicians, abolished um, sla- slavery in the Caribbean. But what remained was this notion of a fuel that could be stored, transported, consumed, destroyed, and so on without ethical scruple, without ethical inquiry, you know, without a, a sense of doubt or wonderment at the at what what larger concerns were at stake, and I think that what happened was that elites applied that understanding to coal, oil, and gas, and so we've always thought of them as simply consumable. Uh, and one consequence of this, actually, is that it, in, in my view, uh, you you've explained that I'm an anti oil activist. Um, you might say, though, in one sense, I'm actually very pro-oil. I think we ought to love oil because it's got amazing qualities. And this is what I learned from experts in Trinidad. The energy density of it um, and gas, too, are remarkable. Um, and I, I, therefore, I hate to see people waste it and use it frivolously and throw it away, essentially. And so what ought to worry us, uh, what ought to in a call, cause the oil lover a certain amount of regret is the way oil is wasted all the time. Uh, it's used, I mean, in, in the United States where I live, people just leave the engines of their cars running when they go to the supermarket and things like that. Um, that's a horrible waste. It's also wasted because people drive their cars around unnecessarily and in the global north, heat their houses to be too hot or air condition them, sometimes in Trinidad to be too cold. We are wasting oil-derived energy all the time, which means we are disrespecting it. So I actually don't think that we should shut down the oil industry entirely, not even the fuels uh, industry entirely. I think we should have some of it around for the stuff that's really necessary Um, for the ambulance that needs to accelerate fast. I I think diesel or gasoline petrol are great fuels. We should have them around and we should revere them and therefore conserve them for those essential purposes. So I probably said enough in response to your first question there, Aleem.
1: There's a lot of stuff to uh, dig into there. Uh, One of the things I I, want to point out that's uh, really interesting is that you're essentially examining a lack of something, you know, this lack of conscience. As you put in the book, uh, the absence of those feelings it prevents it presents a shape that has contours and boundaries, and that you have to sort of brush against the skin of that silence. So I'm wondering, how was the experience of exploring this negative space, or was it different from maybe your other studies, your other works, and what were the challenges of illuminating this negative space?
0: Um. That's a very good question. I mean, I I wrote a book about white Zimbabweans, as I said, this this settler-derived population, um, which was left in the situation when I was doing the research uh, around 2000, uh, a population of 4,500 families owned uh, about 40% of the surface area of the country and by far the best farmland um, in a nation of 10 or 12 million, Um, and, Among those people who were very good farmers, um, there was often a a, a silence about social questions, about equality. There was often a silence about African people altogether, um, which people recognized very often. And there was a way that they looked away and focused instead on nature. And these were people who loved Wild, the wild animals and wild landscapes of Africa, but didn't want to think a great deal about the people. So they sort of, in a way that's almost psychological, they displaced the concern that might have been there for people onto nature. Um, among the oil experts and even activists that I spent time with in Trinidad, there was possibly a similar kind of displacement where people who otherwise would have been very aware of climate change and its impacts and the, uh, the unequal uh, drivers of it um, instead thought a lot about the economy um, and focused on the way in which oil had, was and, and, and has developed the economy in Trinidad and Tobago and provided jobs and so on. They focused on, on that in a way that was almost obsessive as a, as a form of escapism from the moral questions around the climate crisis. And, of course, the further irony there is that we know that under a business-as-usual scenario, carbon emissions and heat trapping and so on will destroy the economy of every country. Um, So ultimately, the the, the moral questions become economic if you look not not that
1: far down the road anymore, a couple of decades. Can you uh, tell me about the the people and professions uh, you interviewed in, in gathering ethnographic information uh, for this book. Uh, was there any particular approach you took, such as, um, I noticed you mentioned in how engaged, just, let me start over that question, <laughs> sorry. Can you tell me about the range of people and professions you interviewed in gathering ethnographic information for this book? Uh, I think you mentioned talk, talking to various people in government and in industry. Uh, was there any particular approach you took? I'm curious. Were there any challenges in gaining access among these different groups? Did you ever have to adjust your approach?
0: Uh, okay, well, I'd say there were there were three groups of informants or or research participants. Um, the first were um, petroleum geologists and uh, experts and policymakers in the Ministry of Energy. And in uh, in petrotrin Natural, uh, the the Natural Gas Company, um, excuse me, National Gas Company, um, and you know various independent uh, oil geologists, reservoir engineers, and so on. And I found them very open. Um, the only it was only the international firms, EOG, for example, refused to to, to see me, um, and. I gave up on BHP Billiton after a certain point as well. So but the Trinidadian firms um, were and their, their staff were quite open. Um, so that was the first group. The second group um, is, is something I would call the climate intelligentsia. And that overlapped a bit with the first group. And it was constituted through a whole bunch of meetings that took place in 2009 and 2010 and and leading and, and up to 2012, maybe 2013, as I did follow-up visits, um, these people would convene through the kind of civil society, um, uh, civil society forums that the government sponsored about climate policy. The Green Business Council was another place where this would happen, um, and and there were various writers and authors and things and public talks, um, and some of this was centered around UE Saint Augustine as well. Um, And then, finally, there were activists uh, around Bray. This was the time of the protest uh, against the smelter, the proposed aluminum smelter. And I was interested there in silences as well, because what was also proposed was an uh, electricity-generating plant fired by natural gas which was, was eventually built and greatly increased the carbon emissions of Trinidad and Tobago, as well as, as leading to ground level emissions, um, there was very little concern about that and much more concern about pollution that might arise from the um, aluminum smelter. and that protest was so compelling that the smelter was not built. So it was a successful protest um, about one kind of pollution and an almost absent protest about another kind of pollution. But I, I also found those people to be quite welcoming. I went to, to uh, demonstrations and events, of course, and some of their meetings. Um, and, 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 and so that was the ethnography, which is the way in which an anthropologist actually participates in activities with the people being studied. I also, among all those three categories, sat down for more formal interviews or conversations with people. So those were, those were my methods. Oh and well, the archival, the archival methods as well. I mentioned on the historicals part. Uh, I looked at the Spanish period in uh, in uh, the archives in Spain, and for regarding the 19th century, uh, I spent time in the National Archives of Trinidad and Tobago and um, uh, looked quite closely at a utopian scheme uh, from the 1840s um, that involved Ivan uh, Conrad Stolmeyer, uh, one of the fathers
1: of the oil industry. Right, I I want to talk to you about that. Um, but first, um, you mentioned you know, interviewing people. Uh, you seem to have talked to them. I I thought in, in often very frank terms, you know, and using their real names as well. Uh, I, you put these people, leaders, activists, politicians, those in industry. Sometimes, in a really. Bad light is to the point where I was surprised they were okay with their remarks being published. Uh, I think at the end you said no one had any complaints or asked for any retractions. Uh, I remember being sort of surprised by that. And (laughs) I remember laughing at points. um, And I especially liked when you directly called people out on their lack of conscience. And sometimes I I saw it as hypocritical points of view. Uh, I'm hoping you could uh, possibly relate some of the reactions you got when you confronted people uh, and were any of those situations frustrating for you
0: um, Well, let me let me say so that and there's a kind of anthropology um, That we call studying up and you know, and the in the history of anthropology It was mostly white Europeans studying people colonized by Europe Um you know, foragers who you might call hunter-gatherers or peasant farmers. So uh, the anthropologist was reaching across an enormous gap of power, a uh, racial power, class power, um, and reaching down that hierarchy. Uh, and, and, you know, by the 1970s, anthropologists had gotten interested in wealthy people and powerful people as well. And so in the, I, I, I see myself as part of that tradition. And certainly studying policymakers in Trinidad and Tobago, these are, these are wealthy and powerful people, um, more wealthy and powerful than me, possibly. So I might have been studying, I might have been reaching up across lines of difference. Um, and therefore, uh, it seemed that one could have a franker conversation, uh, a conversation that challenges. Um, The public figures, I wasn't usually I usually even for wealthy people, I disguise their identity and I'm obligated to do that uh, by the ethical standards of my profession. But for public figures, the ethical standards are a little bit different. And so long as somebody is okay with his or her name appearing, I I put the name in there. You know, I I had a conversation with Patrick Manning in his office, uh, for example, uh, shortly after he'd lost the election in 2010. And uh, there was no way I could disguise his identity. Um, So your question was, was I frustrated? Um, You know, I I, I wasn't really expecting um, a a massive change of heart. I wasn't expecting any conversion experiences on the part of my my Trini informants. Um, I did have some conversations with Krishna Prasad, the independent oil producer where I think he, he came to see things differently and I came to see things differently. He's, he's the one that I spent the most time with and really became close to him and his family. Um, so, I, I but I, and I'm calling somebody out. Uh, well, I, I, I hope it doesn't come quite across as that because um, I, I was looking for knowledge in every case, um, not, not to embarrass somebody uh, a lot of these public figures, of course, you can't, you can't interview them. Uh, you have to find them at places like the Energy Conference, which I attended a couple of times. Um, but also, what was useful about asking a hard question at the Energy Conference is that then the odd people would see this in the audience and people would come up and say, oh, who are you and you know, where do you come from, and that was a good question, or I hated your question, and lead to further conversations with third parties in the room.
1: Right. Well, maybe um, calling it out was the wrong um, framing, but he definitely confronted them on some very uh, difficult questions that they probably haven't reconciled with before. I thought that was very um, interesting to see in those reactions. Uh, well, one of those wealthy and powerful public figures, as you said, uh, at least historically, was Conrad Stullmayer. Um The name is fairly well-known in Trinidad. Um, growing up, I always heard about him, but never really knew anything about him really, but I never imagined uh, solar powered robots would be a part of his story. So uh, why was it important for the book um, to focus on this particular historical figure? Uh, What role did he play in Trinidad's modern day energy sector in terms of developing its lack of conscience and its complicity?
0: Yeah, so this gets back to part of what I said about how oil has this kind of banal flat Amoral uh, connotations around it, um, and the, the the chapter regarding Stolmeyer um, is, is written in a kind of experimental way, where I'm looking at something that didn't happen. You know, this the book, as as you said, is is about silences, about absences, about how oil had an opportunity to gain this kind of romantic, even utopian meaning, but because of certain things that Stolmeyer did, oil. Oil oil developed in this amoral, conscience, uh, conscience less, conscious less way, Um, and and so what Stolmyer did was he hooked up with a guy called Adolphus Etzler, who was a utopian from from Britain by way of from Germany by way of Britain, and they were interested in in abolishing uh, somatic power, abolishing human labor, um, and replacing it with machines. Um, They were followers of the French utopian Charles Fourier. This was all happening in the 1830s, 1840s. Um, And the machines that they imagined would have been solar powered or possibly wind powered. Um, And Stolmeyer and uh, particularly Etzler were abolitionists as well. So they wanted to abolish... The labor the enslave, slavery enslavement and the labor of enslaved people. They wanted to abolish the, necess- the necessity for working class people to do manual labor. And they, 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 so they, they, they brought everybody, they brought about 45 people over to um, the opposite shore uh, from Trinidad in the Gulf of Pitten, Venezuela. it's now Venezuela uh, to a utopian settlement and those people waited for the machine to arrive. This was in about 1844 to 1845. The machine never came because it couldn't actually be constructed, and this was really Adolphus Etzler in some way swindling Stolmeyer, although really it's not clear how much Stollmeyer knew and when he knew it. And then a lot of those people died of various diseases and the the survivors slumped back to Port of Spain and their their ancestors may still be in in, in Trinidad. Um, But Stolmeyer in Port of Spain then in the late 1840s going into the 1850s got hooked up with the Pitch Lake and various experiments of how to make kerosene from Pitch. Um, and kerosene, as we know, can be a fuel for motive power, but also it can be a fuel in uh, the sugarcane refineries in the usine um, and replace a stover or bagasse, sometimes called megas, you know, the crop residues. And uh, the use of that fuel, of kerosene, would make the labor of the guy who shovels the bagasse into the. Um, would obviate his labor, right? That person wouldn't be necessary anymore because you could basically have a pipe and you could put the kerosene there. And that worst and most dangerous and most hellishly hot job in the whole sugar commodity chain could be abolished. Um, So I was interested in why this didn't happen because what Stollmeyer did was he sent kerosene to street lamps in Port of Spain and did not use it to relieve labor. Right. So and and this is what's happened generally with fossil fuels is that this this and as I say, I'm a great lover of fossil fuels. They could be used to actually replace most of the manual labor we do. Um, And that hasn't happened because they've been used instead to allow each worker to produce more stuff and They've led to this incredible consumer boom of things that people mostly don't need and 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 very rapidly don't want anymore consumer uh, consumables, um, and so we we see this interesting point where Stolmeyer had the right ideas, but he lost them in ten 20 or 20, ten or twenty years, and he no longer wanted to after the abolition of slavery. He no longer wanted to abolish labor altogether, and so. He, he diverted the potential of oil elsewhere. And the reason, part of the reasons he did that, I'm surmising by the end of the chapter, is that he, although being an abolitionist, he was not an anti-racist. Um, he was very much of a racist. And what he particularly didn't like after abolition was after emancipation was the sight of Afro-Trinidadians lounging around and not working. So he wanted to make sure people did work um, so he kind of became pro-labor at that point.
1: It, it was really interesting, like, <clears throat> seeing the ideals of his youth um, change, um, being someone who I think advocated for having no labor. And, and then, like, maybe because of his experiences, um, I, I think, as you said, seeing um, the, Id- the idleness of the slaves um, and that sort of changed his whole outlook, right?
0: Yes, yes. I mean, I'm I'm interested, you know, Paul Lafargue, um, the 1890s turn of the century socialist is an interesting figure to me. He wrote a book then at that point called The Right to be Lazy, um, making the argument that we have enough machines now um, that we really don't need to work. And why should we think of work as the ultimate value of human life anyway? Um, so one of the frustrating things to me is that when we, we have all this energy abundance and we're not putting it into in, uses that would alleviate human toil or human suffering, we're putting it into uses
1: that make people work harder and possibly suffer more. Well, the right to be lazy is uh, definitely something I often practice. Uh, I want to go through um, some of the other ideas you sp- explored in the book. Uh, often brought up was what you referred to as uh, a myth of inevitability uh, with regard to the petroleum industry. Um, can you explain what this myth is about?
0: Yeah, so this came out of conversations with people like Krishna Prasad, petroleum geologists and and uh, and, and various kinds of, uh, of executives in oil companies, both parastatal and private. Um, and, you know, I, I would put... The, this kind of challenging set of questions around, you know, given that we all know that climate that that the extraction and then the burning of hydrocarbons drives climate change, why uh, are you still doing it? You know, why don't you stop? Um, and you know, these are people. I mean, I have I have the greatest respect for the expertise of Trinidad's oil and gas expo- experts. I mean, they have been an influential on a global scale in the monetization of gas, particularly in Africa. Um, so these are, these are consequential people that I was posing this question to. And they would say, well, that oil is coming up. And I'd say, well, wh- what do you mean it's coming up? And then they would give me a whole disquisition often on how natural pressure and gravitational sorting are always pushing hydrocarbons towards the surface. And most of them over geological time do come up uh, through the surface, through seeps, often underwater, leading to these kinds of things you call tar balls on the beach and stuff like that. Um, And, of course, if you're if you're in South Trinidad, you're obviously going to believe that oil is coming up naturally because our hydrocarbons are coming up naturally because that's what you see at the Pitch Lake. Um, And they said, all we're doing when we drill is recreating what nature does. We're piercing uh, the cap rock or the trap and releasing or recovering, you might say, the terms are very interesting in the oil industry, recovering those hydrocarbons that were trapped. Um, and so I spent a lot of time reviewing the whole history of petroleum geology and particularly the way stratigraphic diagrams were developed and then the way they were um, merged with you might say or the way the way their iconography was then carried over into something called the petroleum resource management system which is a chart about oil uh, reserves and resources um and, and and that chart also naturalizes or makes it seem normal that oil and gas should always be produced um and so and what I realized in the course of this is that we're not about to run out of oil and gas. Um, there's always more. And we call the stuff that's that's the, the, the great, big, vast ocean of it, the resources. And what we tend to talk about in public are the reserves. But resources through this process uh, that seem to be natural are, are always crossing the threshold and becoming reserves. Um, so I was interested in this kind of merging of economic and geological categories um, where the geologist was often thinking in economic terms um, and, and, and therefore thinking that to the extent that markets are inevitable, then oil production is also inevitable and extraction, the upward movement, the artificial upward movement of oil is also something that somebody is going to do and can't be stopped. Uh, and so this this contributes to this sense of this amoral sense around oil is that if all you're doing is helping nature then that can't be such a bad
1: thing all right uh, one of the other concepts uh, you explore is uh pastoralism i I want to know um how did it manifest uh, I'm over, sorry well one of the concepts you explore is petropastoralism. pastoralism uh, specifically uh, in regard to the thinking of several prominent environmental activists in the country, I believe you refer to them uh, as those people belonging to the climate intelligentsia and specifically involved environmental issues such as uh, the proposed but ultimately abandoned project of the aluminum smelter in Labrie, South Trinidad, and the rapid railway project that would connect um, San Fernando to Port of Spain. Can you talk about this
0: um yeah so the, the pastoral is a, a kind of aesthetic movement um, which has gone on for centuries in british literature at any rate um where uh certain landscapes maybe agricultural landscapes are thought of as being natural beautiful natural bucolic and so agriculture which is which is artificial. Can be represented as being natural and can carry with it that inspiration, that sense of, of freedom that from the 19th century onwards, British people have felt around nature. So, I wanted to import to Trinidad some of that framework. And what I was trying to explain is why fossil fuels, hydrocarbons, seem natural to so many Trinidadians. And so, the first test case of that um, was around the smelter, pro- the smelter battle, which I talked about. The smelter battle which also involved <clears throat> a, um, the construction of a gas-fired power plant, and all of it on a landscape um, that had been quite transformed already decades earlier through the oil industry, um, so much so that the ponds that were then destroyed uh, for to make way for the smelter. The ponds were actually formed by water brought up with oil. That's produced water, uh, heavily polluted oil. Or excuse me, heavily polluted water. Um, but people were describing that landscape as being natural, um, and uh, and 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 as I was saying earlier, it's, it's it seems that you could you could believe that because there is oil coming up or asphalt, at any rate, coming up naturally around the Pitch Lake. So there's a kind of continuum from the, um, the natural oil to the natural gas plant. And all of that seems to be, be almost beyond reproach from environmentalists. So that environmentalists were protesting of things to them that seemed unnatural and seemed seemed toxic and harmful. So beginning with the smelter and ending with the rapid rail project, um, I was really rather disappointed that rapid rail did not get built. Um,
1: Me too. I was as
0: well. (laughs) I, uh, I did believe the predictions that it would reduce carbon emissions very dramatically, improve air quality, allow people to get uh you know from from St. Augustine say or Piarco to Port of Spain oh very rapidly and, and pleasantly. Um, but people saw it as a mega project. So I was interested in this concept of mega project and how and how that, that that the scale of a project didn't seem to fit. The large scale of a project like Rapid Rail didn't seem to fit with the small scale of the island of Trinidad. And I saw in this a whole lot of ideology, which I called then the petro-pastoral, uh, a pro-oil ideology that almost made oil seem natural, oil and its infrastructure seem natural and beautiful, and made other infrastructures seem ugly, uh, uh, gigantic, and, and out of place. That's what that, that chapter is essentially about.
1: Right. Um... And I want to move on to another concept you talked about as well um, uh, what you termed the victim slut and I want to know how how did Trinidad uh, fit into this
0: oh yeah oh yeah I'm glad we're talking about that um, so it, it, I was doing this research around the time of the uh, the cop the, the 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 conference of parties to um, to the Kyoto protocol that that was occurring in um in, in Copenhagen in 20, 2009. But a month before that, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting occurred in Port of Spain, and Patrick Manning treated it, treated that chogum as a sort of dress rehearsal for the cop. And therefore, the chogum force focused a great deal on climate change. And Trinidad presented itself there, the government presented itself there as a victim of climate change. And Trinidad, having joined the Association of Small Island States, also presented itself diplomatically, geopolitically, as a victim of climate change. And as I explained at the outset, that's only half the story. The other half of the story is to be a perpetrator of climate change. And uh, surely anybody with some sophistication could hold these two ideas in his or her head at the same time and say, well, we're in this business of kind of shooting, shooting, our, shooting a, a gun with our hand and hitting our foot all the time, uh, doing two things at once. Um, but it seemed there was something about victimhood that excluded perpetratorhood um, in the way most of my informants talked about it, in the way the media talked about it as well. And it, there was a perverse element because as I followed these discourses, What I saw was that the oil and gas industry itself in Trinidad positioned itself as vulnerable to climate change and as a victim of climate change. Uh, And this is because so much of its infrastructure is close to sea level that it's threatened by uh, sea level rise, storm surges, things like that. Uh, But and all that is true. But that those kinds of arguments and appeals kept silencing the part wherein the oil and gas industry was causing the same harm. So that's what I mean by a slot. It's a kind of simplifying device where it becomes very hard for people to see the moral complexity around your role when you claim victimhood to climate
1: change. Right. Um, David, I hope you could allow me um, to indulge in playing devil's advocate for a moment, because you often address pushback and criticism of your ideas in the book, right? I, I think bringing this up would make for an interesting discussion, right? So often in repudiation of your argument, um, people brought up the fact that Trinidad contributes less than you know 0.1% to Global CO2. And as the book mentions, this was a talking point of the late Prime Minister um, we interviewed, the Honorable Dr. Patrick Manning. So uh, I'm wondering, um, bringing up like um, in some, in line with what he said, shouldn't we we really be paying attention to, you know, maybe um, the developed world, uh, the global corporations there that contribute um, mostly to? Um, global CO2 emissions, rather than the minuscule amounts produced by a small island petrol state like Trinidad. Um, I'm wondering, how does the book address this?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I certainly don't think we should let off uh, countries of the global north and their industries and corporations. I certainly don't think we should let them off the hook by any means. Um and much of my, my activism is focused entirely in the United States uh, on those kinds of actors, against those kinds of actors. Um, but one of, the, one of the presumptions behind the book is that the nation state is not the only unit of analysis. You know, when you have a twin island state or any island state, it's easy to, to think of the nation state as being the only relevant unit of analysis because of the way the land form kind of contains your identity. Um, But we know the oil and gas industry is global. Um, I did uh, interview people at BPTT, which is, of course, uh, a a subsidiary of BP. Um, And I guess I would say that the argument that your small contribution in absolute terms um, removes responsibility is something anybody could uh, anybody could actually use that argument. You know, BP, globally, I'm not sure what their emissions are, but it's smaller than the United States or China. So BP could say, well, we're just small. You know, we're like Trinidad and Tobago. We're just small. ExxonMobil, maybe they're just small. They don't actually burn a lot of oil and gas. They just bring it out of the ground. Um, And um, anybody, any individual or group or town could also say its emissions are small. And so you could could take apart larger uh, units such as China and break it down into smaller parts and then each one of those smaller parts would say we're small. Um, And remember Trinidad's boundaries themselves are only an accident of politics, beginning with the breakup of the British Empire and with the failure of the Federation of the West Indies so I, I wouldn't treat Trinidad as a natural unit of analysis um i and, and in in any case, mostly I was talking about to individuals about their own sense of responsibility and th- those could be people those could be people in the oil and gas sector anywhere
1: in the world right, right okay well uh, uh building on on that last point um talking about individuals, but what is uh, your prescription? I think you mentioned it in the conclusion. How should we move forward um, uh, knowing this uh, energy without conscience is taking place? And as you mentioned, we can't just stop oil production. Uh, So, yeah, do you or the book propose any ideas on how we might move forward?
0: Well, I didn't say we can't just stop oil production. I said we shouldn't stop it 100%. Um, we could stop at 99%, um, you know, so I, am concerned about the conditions for life on planet earth and I've become even more concerned about them, um, since writing the book. And so I, I start any consideration of this question with what do we need to do to survive and particularly what do we need to do for the most vulnerable people? some of whom are in trinidad and tobago some of whom are in a city like georgetown guyana is very vulnerable bangladesh vietnam uh, pakistan now incredibly vulnerable populations what do we need to do for them to survive um and it seems like we need to stop burning hydrocarbons Uh, and so then that that's what that is what the the dynamics of the atmosphere are dictating, and the atmosphere doesn't negotiate with us. It doesn't reason, um, so we have hard constraints, and so let's work from that from those hard constraints. Let's work out what a political and economic program for survival can be. Um, so it involves ceasing to burn oil, gas, and coal very rapidly. Um, not 100% but 99%. Um, so uh, well, you know Trinidad has a lot to consider uh, as a petrostate um whose economy depends so much on oil and particularly gas. Um various people going back to the Green Business Council have proposed alternative industries. Um uh fertilizer for example Is a big hydrocarbon project product that agriculture is still going to need you can make it from hydrogen green hydrogen uh, from seawater Possibly using electricity generated from wind or sunlight Uh, Trinidad would seem ideally positioned to harvest those renewable resources and put them into producing fertilizer, right? Uh, replacing the kind of uh, Haber Bosch process that Methanex and Yara and so on use. All right, and there, why not do that? Um, that's something. That's something. That's That's it's an economic industry that Trinidad is as well positioned, possibly even better positioned to do that than to continue producing gas. Um, right. So. I won't say that that, that, a tra- that, that that kind of transition would be without disruption or without unemployment. And it's very easy for me to talk about this as a nicely employed professor in New Jersey. Um, but Any of the disruption that we're talking about in moving rapidly away from fossil fuels is a whole lot more survivable than climate change under business as usual. There's a question of economic disruption versus global apocalypse. I would choose economic disruption any day. And I think anybody sensible would.
1: Well, on that note, I think um, we'll uh, end the discussion on energy without conscience. I, Before we go, I want to ask um, you, uh, is there... Any material uh, you have out uh, or that you're currently working on that would you like to share? Um, any anything that's next for you?
0: Well, sure. Uh, you mentioned the book about wind power. Who owns the wind? Um, it's an examination of opposition to wind farms in a, in a Spanish village surrounded by wind turbines, um, but it's really making arguments about who should own uh, wind. And what kind what kind of uh, of property regime would most lo- be most likely to promote the energy transition? And I'm arguing for public ownership or common ownership of the wind as a way of getting more allies and more support for wind power uh, to replace and retire fossil fuels. Um, what probably. Uh, It's most accessible to people actually are some chapters of that book came out in in an online free uh, magazine called Boston Review. I've also got more recent pieces on solar energy and forms of ownership of solar energy. Um, My latest work has not come out. I'm studying civil disobedience movements against fossil fuels in the Northeastern US. Um, so people can keep a lookout for that. I, I may publish an article pretty soon in Boston Review on that. So I, I, have a, I have a page, an author page in Boston Review, and a lot of stuff comes out there. And that's a good place to... And I have, of course, my own website, uh, a WordPress site under David McDermott Hughes. So that's a good idea, a good way to keep uh, up with my latest stuff without a paywall.
1: Well, I definitely will, David. I want to thank you for engaging me um, in conversation about your book and Energy Without Conscience. And maybe for your future books, we could have a conversation again.
0: I'd be happy to do that, Alim. Thank you. And thank you to the folks listening to the show.
1: All right. Bye, David. You have a good one.
0: Okay. You too.